I hope that uh, you know enjoyed the last couple weeks when we had our uh, go our global outreach uh, emphasis this past year. Uh, I thought it was a great uh, time for us to just be exposed to some other people and to some things that the Lord is doing in different places around the world. And I hope you felt challenged by our speakers, and uh, I hope you had an opportunity to get to know some of our missionaries that were here, and uh, that you were able to kind of bond to them in such a way that they feel uh, our encouragement, and they know they're not out there uh, kind of on their own and by themselves. And uh, I also hope that you had an opportunity to uh, be a part of our faith promise, is how we support our missionaries uh, through prayer and through giving. And uh, we do it in a special way, Faith Promise. And these were, uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, you just, uh, these Faith Promise cards are some out on the foyer. You just fill in the bottom and tear it off and turn this in. And uh, that helps us to set the budget for these missionaries uh, in the coming year. But this morning, we want to get back to Moses. Remember Moses? We were talking about Moses before the missions uh, conference. And uh, you can just look up here and be reminded about um, Moses. And we've been looking to Moses as a mentor, right? Somebody who lived his life in a relationship with God that we could model our lives after. Uh, Moses had a unique relationship with God that we can learn a lot from and that we can imitate. And then we saw how this relationship with God moves us toward becoming a servant leader in the kingdom of God. That when we have the right relationship with God, God moves us toward being servant leaders. Uh, So Moses was a person, right, that God used to rescue his people out of Egypt. Uh, Just like Jesus comes and rescues us uh, out of slavery to sin and sets us free uh, for all of eternity. And so we saw that when uh, Moses grew up, um, God allowed him to come into a defining moment in his life. Um, You might remember, um, he saw an Egyptian uh, beating up on a Hebrew. And uh, when Moses saw that, um, he had to make a decision. He had to make a decision between identifying with his adoptive family, Egypt, right? The princess of Egypt and uh, all the benefits that came with uh, being a part of royalty. And he had to choose whether he was going to identify with that or... If he was going to identify with his roots, with his, the people of God, the chosen people of God, the Hebrew people, the uh, descendants of Abraham, and all the difficulties and all the suffering that would be associated with identifying with the Hebrews. And uh, the Bible makes a pretty big deal uh, out of this defining moment in Moses' life. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24 and 25 Uh, The author of Hebrews says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So this was a choice that Moses made. It was a defining moment for Moses. And uh, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7 that even at this time, Moses had a sense that somehow God had communicated to him that he was going to be a deliverer of God's people out of Egypt. In Acts chapter 7 and verse uh, 22, we read these words. And Moses uh, was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. 
the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended uh, the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now here's the verse. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they didn't understand. So Moses knew at that time that God had a plan for his life, had a dream for uh, Moses' life. But the people didn't understand and didn't accept him. And so this is kind of where we pick up with Moses this morning. Um, And I'd like to uh, invite you just to think with me. The very next day, as soon as Moses killed the Egyptian, the very next day is where we pick up. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 13. Uh, We read these words. When he went out, okay, the next day, So he kills the Egyptian, and he goes out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews are struggling together. They're fighting each other. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion or your brother? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian?" Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So the very next day, as this defining moment, right, kills the Egyptian, the very next day he goes out, talks to two more Hebrew people who are fighting, and um, realizes that... Uh, even without cell phones and social media, word got around, right, that he had killed the Egyptian. And so um, he takes off and he goes to a place called Midian. Now, Midian is no place. I mean, Midian was uh, northwest Arabia and the Sinai Peninsula, okay? And uh, there was nobody there except some nomads, some shepherds who roamed around that area Uh, trying to find something for their flocks, you know, to keep them going and so forth. They just wandered around the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, Moses ends up becoming a part of one of these sheep herding families. He marries into the family for the next 40 years. He's in the desert. 40 years. He's off in the desert. And the Sinai Peninsula, it's one of the most desolate and inhospitable places on the face of the earth. And so I want to suggest to you that there's a phenomenon going on here that shows up in other places in the Bible that I learned from somebody else a long time ago called the birth, death, and rebirth of a dream. The birth, death, and rebirth of a dream. So it's like God gives a dream. Somehow he communicated to Moses a vision that you're going to deliver my people out of Egypt. And uh, so Moses, the minute he goes to do it and kills the Egyptian and thinks that everybody's going to understand, he's in the desert for the next 40 years. It's like the death of the dream that God gave. Until we get to chapter 3 in the burning bush, And God rebirths the dream in Moses to go and deliver the people. And it starts to get pretty exciting. And I think you see this phenomenon. God comes to Abraham, right? He says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make a huge nation out of you. 
I mean, more people than you can count stars in the heavens and so on. And uh, Abraham's like, this is exciting. And he takes off and, you know, he's telling his wife, Sarah, and so forth. But then guess what? No kid. No kid. 100 years old. Still no kid. So Abraham and Sarah kind of take things into their own hands. And Ishmael is born. And God says, not the right kid. Right? Death of a dream. Took things into his own hands. Tried to resolve. Tried to fulfill the dream that God had given. And the dream dies. And then, of course, Isaac is born, and the dream is resurrected. And then God says, now take Isaac and go sacrifice him, and the death of the dream. And then, you remember, God spares his life and provides a substitute and so forth, and it's like the rebirth of the dream of the nation of Israel. And there's this phenomenon that you can follow, Jesus. Uh, He came to be the Messiah, and the Jewish people are like, wow, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? And the dream is there. Right? Because it's in the scriptures. And, and then he dies on a cross. And it's like the death of a dream. All the disciples go fishing. It's over. And then, of course, Easter Sunday. It's like the rebirth of the dream. And so there's this phenomenon. And I suspect that you're familiar with it in your own life. You get married. And you have this dream. This is going to be great. This is the woman of my dreams. The man of my dreams. Then you hit a little rough water and the dream sort of becomes more reality. Or maybe you end up divorcing in the middle of, you know, the death of the dream. And uh, if you hang in there, all of a sudden you'll discover that God will rebirth that dream if you'll walk with him and stick with him and allow him uh, to feed into the dream. Maybe you have a kid. And you have this dream for this kid, and it's going to be great. And you're going to take your life, and you're going to wrap it around making this dream happen in this kid. And the kid grows up, becomes a teenager, and guess what? The dream sort of goes south, right? You can identify with this phenomenon. But if you hang in there, and you keep loving, and you keep bringing grace, and you allow God to change you, all of a sudden, God rebirths the dream, huh? And, and any kind of scenario, maybe, maybe you say, you know, oh, I need a certain amount of finances. And you work real hard and you save up all these finances and, and you finally, you know, think that you're going to be able to accomplish your dream. And all of a sudden you get sick and all of a sudden your little bank account goes broke because you have to pay all these medical bills. And it's like the death of the dream. Maybe you get this job and you have this dream. Oh, this is going to be a great job. I can't wait. It's what I, all my life I've been preparing to do this. I'm so excited about it. And then something happens and, you know, the death of the dream happens. And I have to wait on God, wait on God, wait on God. And then all of a sudden, when it's time in God's strength and God's timing, he rebirths the dream. And all of a sudden you're off and running and you're so glad you hung in there. You know, Well, that's Moses, right? Moses has this idea, I'm going to be the deliverer of God's people. So excited about it. The minute he moves toward it and kills the Egyptian, nobody understands And he heads for the desert. And it's like the death of the dream for 40 years. He's living in that death kind of period. And um, I think we can all relate to this. Now, it's very interesting. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 15, I read for you this verse. When Pharaoh heard of it, um, when Pharaoh, the king, heard of it, you know, uh, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down uh, by a well. So 
what would you think? Why did Moses go off into the desert? Well, it would seem to me, you know, well, he was afraid of Pharaoh was going to knock him out. And so uh, it seems like that. But in the book of Hebrews, if we go back to Hebrews, we read that, no, that wasn't why Moses left and went to the desert. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 27 puts it like this. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Now, that little phrase tripped me up. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I just read back there in Exodus that he took off and the king was trying to kill him and so forth. And so then when I get to Hebrews and get the commentary, the New Testament commentary and what was going on back there. It says, no, he, he wasn't afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured uh, as seeing him who's invisible. And I think, well, then why did Moses head off into the desert if he wasn't afraid of the king? And so um, I have a couple of ideas. I don't know for sure, right? But here's an idea. Uh, maybe he took off into the desert because his own people didn't get it. It's one thing to have an enemy that's defined who's trying to kill you and you know all about that. It's another thing to kind of come to your own people and have a dream and expect that your people are going to get on board with you and have them misunderstand. And uh, maybe he headed off into the desert because um, of the way that the news spread and that the people didn't understand. And uh, not only that, but uh, probably if I was... Uh, a Hebrew back in that day, I would understand, you know what, Pharaoh's really ticked now and he's going to increase our workload and he's going to make us sweat for what Moses did in killing the Egyptian. And we're all going to suffer because of this guy Moses. Maybe Moses was afraid of his own people more than he was afraid of the king. Um, and it's all Moses' fault. So uh, again, back in Acts chapter 7, a couple of verses later, verse uh, 25 um, he supposes that his brothers would understand, Moses, you know, thought his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't get it. And on the following day, he appeared to uh, them uh, as they were quarreling. This is a commentary on what we read in Exodus uh, and tried to reconcile them saying, men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? Uh, but the man who was uh, wronging his neighbor uh, thrust him aside. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Now look, at this retort, Moses fled. Maybe it wasn't the king he was afraid of. Maybe it was his own people. And he became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons over the course of uh, 40 years. Now, I don't think we can know for sure, but it wasn't because he was afraid of the king. Uh, I wonder... Uh, Another idea, I wonder if Moses wasn't having some kind of a, what we would call a midlife crisis. I mean, he's 40 years old and his dream dies. He's 40 years old and he thought God was grooming him for this particular ministry or mission. And now all of a sudden it, it, it just fell flat. And that's what we would call today kind of a, a midlife crisis, right? Um, his dream died. Maybe Moses put together an understanding of his whole life around this idea that he was to rescue the Hebrew people and uh, it all blew up. And it leads Moses to question his whole existence. Can you identify with that? Uh, again, God maybe plants a dream in your mind and um, 
you get going down the road and all of a sudden, you know, uh, it just seems like everything about it falls flat. And so maybe Moses is questioning himself, what, you know, was that really what God said? Was that really what God, maybe that was just in my imagination. Maybe God didn't really speak to me. Maybe, you know, I misunderstood and so on and so forth. It's kind of like an identity crisis, you know. Uh, but the Bible says, by faith, Moses left Egypt and went to Midian. Uh, seeing him who is invisible is the way uh, the author of Hebrew puts it. Somehow it was God who led Moses into the desert. Somehow Moses knew that this desert experience was part of God's plan for him. Now, oftentimes when we get into a desert experience, right, we're like, oh, that couldn't be God's plan. for." I, if I had a dollar for every person who says, doesn't God want me to be happy? I'd be a rich person, right? And, of course, the standard answer is, no, God wants you to be holy. He wants you to be like him, not necessarily happy, but holy. And so when we get into these desert experiences, which are designed by God for a purpose, Instead of fighting God, Moses had a sense that, you know, this was part of uh, what God was doing in his life. Somehow, uh, God led Moses into the desert, and he was aware of it. And so then I think, you know, maybe Moses was conflicted on the inside. Uh, think about this. Um, maybe he was confronted with a fact about himself that he never thought was true. He's now a murderer. Moses, right? At 40 years old, he's killed somebody. And maybe he always thought of himself as a deliverer, as a savior. And now he's a murderer. And he killed somebody. And maybe Moses said to himself, you know, I, I never had that in me. And I killed somebody. And my people don't understand. And uh, maybe it was off or not. Maybe, uh, you know, uh, he realized he was a killer. And there was this anger or this rage or this hatred inside of Moses that if you push the right button, out of the cup. You ever had that experience? Can you identify with that? Have you ever thought, you know, I'm this nice guy and this and that, and then somebody pushes the wrong button and out it comes. And maybe Moses had to rethink, you know, who, who really am I? And have I really let the Lord, you know, take over my life? And am I really a person of God? I think if Channel 8 News had been there, Right? And gone around to the neighbors. I think the neighbors would have said, oh, I'd have never believed Moses would kill somebody. You know, he's, he's part of the elite. Egypt. He's the son of the princess. He's always so well-mannered. He's always so high-principled. And he just killed somebody with his bare hands. <coughs> Maybe it was hard for Moses to kind of uh, admit, you know what? I'm not the person I think I am. I've just demonstrated that I'm somebody different than my perception of myself. Maybe it was an internal crisis. Uh, Moses himself might have thought, you know what, I'm better than that, you know, about himself. But now he had to admit, you know what, no, I'm not. I'm really not better than that. Uh, I'm not who I thought I was, and maybe we can relate. Um, we do things out of character. And so Moses maybe heads out into the desert to search his own soul and uh, to figure out what's really going on. In any event, um, Moses came out of Midian, of these 40 years in the desert, a very different person than when he went into Midian 40 years earlier. He goes in in chapter 2, he comes out in chapter 3, and he's an entirely different uh, person. 
And I think um, uh, the difference, uh, the desert experience, uh, creates some major changes in Moses' life. And they're changes that are necessary if God's going to use us as servant leaders. And rather than fight the desert experiences, we ought to be asking, you know, what is it that God is trying to change in my life in the midst of the desert experiences so that I can be, in fact, a servant leader? And it's really important. I think uh, it's extremely important when it comes to being a servant leader. The thing that changed in Moses, extremely significant, is attitude. His attitude. Now, it's really interesting. Um, Again, in um, Exodus, way back in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 15, uh, we read that uh, Moses stayed uh, when Pharaoh heard of it and and so forth. Uh, When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and he stayed in the land of Midian. He stayed in his desert experience. You know, if I'm Moses in about a week, I'm like, you know what? I'm starting to miss Egypt. I'm starting to miss who I was. And I'm out here with these shepherds and, you know, and this is a desert place. And, but it says that Moses stayed there in the desert. And then in verse um, 21, uh, we read these words. Uh, and Moses was content to dwell there in the desert with his new father-in-law. He not only stayed, but he was content. Reminds me of the Apostle Paul, says, I've learned how to be content in any circumstance. Most of us blame the circumstances for how miserable we are, right? But here, Moses, out in the desert experience, is learning to be content and to be able to stay there. And his attitude was one of contentment. Now, think about this, right? He was a Hebrew. He was one of God's people. And, uh, and then he's an Egyptian. He's adopted by an Egyptian family into royalty, has every advantage. And then he's exiled into no place in Midian. And he's married into a nomad family. And he's herding sheep. And uh, he's marginalized. But he's content. He's marginalized, and yet he's uh, content. And so the only clue that we have as to how he did that or how he was enabled to do that in the midst of his circumstances is, again, back in Hebrews uh, chapter 11 and verse 27, it says he endured as seeing him who's invisible. He endured his desert circumstances by being able to see that God was leading him. And, uh, you know, that sounds kind of funny, being able to see him who's invisible. Somehow he knew that God led him there, and he endured by seeing God who is invisible, uh, which is what biblical faith really is, right? What is faith? Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the confidence about things that are in the future. It's the conviction of things not seen. While this sounds like a really heavy concept, being able to see him who's invisible, the truth is, this is a normal experience in a normal Christian life. We're able to see what we can't see physically. We're able to see him who's invisible. And we see God's hand, and we see God's word, and we see God's spirit at work. And that's how we endure in various circumstances. That's what faith actually is. Uh, Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God 
so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We see that God's hand made the universe uh, and it wasn't made out of things that were visible to the physical eye. We see more than what other people see by faith in the God who's revealed himself to us. Uh, and that's why it says here in verse uh, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Forget about it. If you're trying to please God by your own efforts instead of putting your faith in what God has done and what God has said and what God has given us and so on, uh, it's impossible to please God that way. And some people are really working hard at that, right? They have miserable lives, but they're working hard to try to please God. And uh, God says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who honestly seek him or diligently seek him. And so it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's the normal part of faith for a believer. And, um, you know, the uh, Hebrews 11 says that uh, Moses, on that very significant uh, defining day, um, chose to suffer uh, with Christ rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, uh, to be reproached uh, with Christ, the, the reproach of Christ he chose. And uh, to be reproached is to be discredited, right? It's to be... Um, Disgraced. It's to be put down. It's to be blamed. And Moses felt that with Jesus. You know, like, like Jesus was hated and killed, Moses felt exiled uh, in Midian and rejected by his own people because they didn't understand. And so when we're in desert experiences, and if we're God's children, God brings us through those desert times from time to time, um, our thoughts go from our circumstances to our attitudes. Our thoughts go from our circumstances. We think about, well, you know, this has happened, that's happening, this is miserable, that's miserable. But the question is, how am I going to respond to what's happening to me? Am I going to have faith? And am I going to be able to see him who's invisible and respond the way God wants me to? Or am I going to respond in some other way? And I think this is uh, pretty significant uh, when we get... Uh, into a Midian-type experience, our focus needs to go off of our circumstances and onto our attitude. Uh, attitude is everything. Attitude is everything. See if you agree. Chuck Swindoll said this. Attitude is more important than facts. Attitude is more important than facts. You ever get into an argument where you're arguing about the facts? Well, now... My wife said to me last Tuesday, no, it was Wednesday, you know. Well, it was on the way to church. No, it was on the way to work. You know, it was right after she had her orange juice. No, no, she was drinking coffee. I get in the middle of these arguments sometimes like this, and people are arguing facts. And I want to say, hey, time out. Can you hear your attitude? In the midst of the facts, your attitude is way more, who cares if it was Tuesday or Wednesday, if it was orange juice or coffee, if it was Sunday or Friday. That's not what's important, but that's what we do. We start arguing about facts instead of attitude. And uh, I think when uh, Swindoll says, you know, I think he's right. Attitude is more important than facts. And he went on. He said, um, our attitude... Um, is more important 
than our past. You can't change your past. There's nothing you can do about your past. But your attitude about your past is your choice. How you choose to relate to your past. You can't change your past. There's a lot of things in life you can't change. But your attitude, you can change. And wouldn't you know that God uses often these desert experiences to change our attitudes? Now, Moses, he must have been a little bit stubborn, 40 years. Uh, Changing attitudes. Our attitudes are uh, more important than our education. Well, I have these degrees and da-da-da-da-da, so I'm right, you're wrong. I don't think so. What's your attitude? Are you humble about your education? Our attitude's more important than our money. Our attitude is more important than our circumstances. Our attitude is more important than our failures or our successes. How we feel about them and how we respond to them and how we react to them are more important than what actually happens. Um, What attitude are we going to embrace? And that's our choice. We can't change the past. You cannot change what's right and wrong. You cannot change other people against their will. You cannot change the fact of death. But we can change our attitude. We can change our attitude. And isn't that what God is doing to prepare us to be um, servant leaders? Uh, I think Moses was out in the desert for some attitude adjustments. And um, the truth be known, uh, life is pretty much 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it, how you respond to it. Are you going to respond with faith, seeing him who's invisible, and allow what you know about God to be applied to whatever the circumstances or situations? You have no control over what God allows into your life. But you do have control as to how you're going to respond to it. That's our choice. And that's what it seems to me the desert experience for Moses was all about. Uh, He was in the desert for some attitude adjustments. Um, When he was the prince of Egypt, he thought he could deliver the people of God. And so he killed the Egyptian. By the time he came out, when when we get to chapter 3, it's kind of exciting. He's an entirely different person. He's like, I can't do it. God's like, I'm going to send you. And he's like, oh, please send somebody else. I could never do that. And God says, I'm going to go with you. I'll do it. You're just along for the ride. And he has a lot of work to convince uh, Moses and so forth. But there's this attitude adjustment uh, out in the desert experience. And God was so pleased with the development of Moses um, over the course of time. And this uh, fast forwards a little bit. But in Exodus chapter 33, God talks about how excited he is about uh, what happened to Moses. And this desert experience is certainly a part of it. Uh, In verse 7, it says, now Moses... um, used to uh, take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, uh, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting, and everybody who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand in his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses." And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, the young man, would not depart from the tent. 
God spoke to Moses differently. In um, Numbers chapter 12, there's an incident that I think, again, reveals this. In Numbers chapter 12 and verse 1, um, you know, Moses had a brother and a sister, right? Aaron and Miriam. And uh, so here's what we read in verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. So his brother and sister speak against him because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. Remember, uh, there's a little debate as to who the Cushite woman actually is. Some think it was the woman that he married uh, while he was out in Midian in the desert, and others think it's somebody else. But anyway, uh, that really wasn't the reason they were arguing with Moses anyhow. Verse 2 reveals the truth. Uh, And they said, you know, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? You know, has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Okay? Now, the man Moses was very meek. Uh, Read humble. Uh, That word meek could be easily translated humble. More than all the people who were on the face of the earth. I say some of that must have happened in the desert. In his desert experience. An attitude toward himself. He was humbled in the desert. He was humbled, went from being the prince, you know, of Egypt and all the way uh, into the desert. He was more humble than all the people on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision or a dream. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth or face to face. Clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. That's pretty cool, isn't it? God is like ticked. God is like, you know, don't you mess with my relationship with Moses. Don't you just think he's just a run-of-the-mill kind of prophet. I've invested a lot in Moses, and I'm very pleased with him and and so forth. And I want to say to you that, you know, servant leadership is not so much about position as it is disposition. Servant leadership is about disposition, about what influences people is who we become when we allow God uh, to shape us after his own likeness. Walt Emerson said, you know, what lies uh, behind us and what lies before us are tiny things compared to what lies within us. Whatever our past is and whatever we're going to face in the future are very tiny things. Our circumstances are very tiny things compared to our attitudes, which lie within us. Our attitudes determine how we're going to interpret events and how we're going to handle our feelings. How we feel and how we handle our feelings are very different. Uh, Our taking responsibility for our own attitudes is the opposite of blaming everybody else or blaming circumstances for our attitudes. And uh, really, I think we can um, start a whole new life and be totally transformed as soon as we just take responsibility for our own attitudes. Uh, We can't choose uh, what God allows us to go through, but we can choose how we're going to go through whatever God brings our way and trust that he's designed this desert experience uh, for our good. And so Moses went through his desert experience by faith, seeing him who's invisible. 
If we blame our poor attitudes like anger and bitterness and fear and regret and harden and those things solidify, uh, then we start to um, blame the situation instead of uh, embracing a new attitude. And uh, I've met people who have said, you know, this or that situation happened in my life. It ruined my life. Uh, This or that person, you know, ruined my life. No, your choice as to how you responded to those different situations and circumstances and people and incidents are what have the potential to ruin our lives. And so we need to ask, you know, where is God in the midst of all of that? So, I don't know, have you ever seen like a a 10-ton elephant tied to a little stake in the ground and confined to that space? And you say to yourself, what's wrong with that elephant? Why doesn't he just rip that stake out of the ground and enjoy his freedom? There's two things about elephants that uh, create that situation. One is elephants have incredible memories. They really have a great memory. And the second is that elephants are really not very smart, okay? And so when a baby elephant is first born, when a 10-ton elephant only weighs 300 pounds and you tie him to a stake, that elephant will try to pull away from that stake like 10,000 times, right? And finally, it gets it into its uh, head that, you know what, I can't pull away from the stake. And at that point, it goes into their memory, And they remember forever and ever for the rest of their life that they can never get away from the stake. That's that's why a 10-ton elephant, you know, can be tied to a little stake in the ground and could easily, you know, uh, easily pull the stake out of the ground. And I think we're like that. I think when we're kids, somebody says something to us that drives a stake in the ground or a stake in our mind. You know, somebody says to us, you'll never amount to anything. You know, or you're really dumb. You know, or uh, you'll never have any friends. And, and we have memories. And it drives a stake into our minds. And oftentimes, I believe that God allows us to go into these desert experiences in order that we might be shaken loose from those stakes that we, that we remember and that are keeping us back. You know, ask yourself, why am I not more of a servant leader for God? What's keeping me back? What's the stake in the ground that, you know, got when I was a kid or when I was a young person uh, that got driven into the ground and it's in my memory and it keeps me from taking risks. It keeps me from living by faith. It keeps me from venturing out and being a servant leader. It keeps me afraid of that word leader. I don't want to take responsibility for anything. What is that stake in the ground that your memory has been tied to, and even though it's no longer true, even though a 10-ton elephant could easily rip the stake out of the ground, its mind is telling it, I can't get away from the stake. And it's a lie. It's not true. Now that you're grown up, you can just rip the tar out of that stake. And we're like that. How many of us have attitudes which were shaped by remembering something that happened to us in the past? It drives a stake into our minds, and often it takes a desert experience. So maybe Moses heard people say, you know, you're a killer. You're not a deliverer. We're not going to follow you or listen to you. And he needed a desert experience until God uh, could tap him on the shoulder through the burning bush and rebirth his dream. And God say, look, I am with you. Uh, You and I have something special going on. And Moses had this attitude adjustment, and God changed him so they could be freed up to be a servant leader. And again, how about us? Are there those things somewhere along the line that keep us 
from venturing out. I mean, I, got, I walked away from our uh, missions conference uh, and just thought, you know what? The world is going south fast. It was kind of funny. Remember the globe we had hanging up over here? And uh, on the bottom of the globe where you put the air in, when I was letting the air out, there's a little sign on the bottom of the globe. You know what it says? This device is not to be used for life-saving. And I thought, you have no idea how true that is, that this world is not going to save your life, right? It's not a life-saving device. God is our Savior, and he wants to save us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for Moses and the story of Moses. He's sort of a pre-Jesus and a savior of your people. And we can learn so much about leadership and servant leadership from him. And we especially appreciate learning about the relationship that you are willing to have with us, that you invite us into. And that even in the desert experiences, we can trust you. And we can know, Father, that uh, you're at work in our life. And so I pray that you would help us uh, in the middle of all the different experiences in life, that we would be able to see uh, him who's invisible, and that we would react by faith and trust, and that you would set us free from the stakes that are driven into our minds that keep us, Father, from being the servant leaders you've called us to be. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Uh, just before we call our ushers to uh, wait,